This is the Best Song Podcast, an oral history of the first 90 years of the Academy Award for Best Original Song. The Best Song Podcast was made possible by the generous support of the following. Paulus Edukas, Terry Freerks, Tina Fry, Jeff Glazer, Mark Hollingsworth, Douglas Meacham, Mark Smith, The Sokolov Family, Colin Stokes, Adrian Quinn Washington, and Ben Watson. Let's settle in now for this episode with the host of the Best Song Podcast, Jeff Cummings. Hi, everyone. At the end of this episode, it's very likely you're going to agree with me that 1964 was a very strong year for movie songs. And that goes back to the heyday of the 1930s and the 1940s. Original movie musicals were making a return to the big screen, giving us so many songs eligible for the Academy Award that there were nearly a dozen songs that should have made the list, but didn't. Now let's get started learning more about them. Walt Disney had been known to pester authors to let him adapt their stories into films for more than a decade, and his begging to Mary Poppins author P.L. Travers lasted more than 20 years. Back when he was looking for a follow-up to Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, Disney was asked by his daughters to make a movie out of their favorite series of books based on the British nanny, Mary Poppins. They had to wait until 1961 for Travers to say yes. Richard and Robert Sherman were the top songwriters at the Disney studio and had just made themselves indispensable to Disney before getting the assignment to write songs for Mary Poppins. So much so that Disney simply called them the boys. Disney had been tasked with designing an attraction for the New York World's Fair set for spring 1964. That attraction turned out to be a boat ride featuring animatronic figures from various regions of the world. Music was needed for the attraction, and the Sherman Brothers turned in It's a Small World. I'm sure I don't need to play that song for you. It's become the most played song in history, and it's also been ranked as one of the most annoying songs in history as a result. The Shermans took on the task of writing the songs for Mary Poppins, and they used British Music Hall songs of the 1930s as inspiration. Here's a song that Richard Sherman said in a 2014 interview had, quote, an honesty and vigor that you can't beat, end quote. And that song is called Boiled Beef and Carrots. When I was a nipper, only six months old, my mother and my father too. They didn't know what to wean me on, they were in the dreadful stew. They thought of strife, they thought of steak, or a little bit of old cod row. I said, Bob, round to the old cook shop, and I'll tell you what'll make me grow. Boil beef and carrots, boil beef and carrots. That's the stuff for your Darby gel, makes you fat and it keeps you well. Don't live like vegetarians on food, they give the parrots. Blow out your kite from morning night on boil beef and carrots. If you know the song score to Mary Poppins, you can hear how this type of song inspired the likes of Step in Time and Supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. The Shermans wrote close to 30 songs for the movie, 16 of which were used in the final version. If you've seen the film, and even if you haven't, you might know a lot of the songs and wonder why only one of them was nominated for an Oscar. If there was a song score that deserved to be the first to feature more than one nominated song, 
Mary Poppins certainly was it. As I have mentioned before, there was no rule specifically limiting a film to one nominated song, but the only one for Mary Poppins that got through was Chim Chim Cherry, the cheerful tune sung by Dick Van Dyke's Burt several times throughout the movie. The first time we hear it, it's as a snippet during the opening credits. Our introduction to Dick Van Dyke's Burt was as a musical performer in front of a park in London, and Chim Chim Cherie uses the melody, using the time signature of a waltz to describe the lives of a few of the onlookers. Oh, what, ladies and gents, comical poem, suitable for the occasion, extemporized and thought up before your very eyes. All right, here we go. Roomy for everyone, gather around. The constable is responsible. Now, how does that sound? Mm. Hello, Miss Locke. I got one for you. Miss Locke likes to walk in the park with Andrew. <laughs> Hello, Andrew. Ah, uh, Mrs. Corey, a story for you. Your daughters were shorter than you, but they grew. <laughs> Dear Miss Persimmon. Yes? Winds in the east. Miss coming in. Like something is brewing, about to begin. I'll put me finger on what lies in store. I feel what's to happen. All happened before. Bert takes on a few different jobs throughout the movie, and Chim Chim Cherie is used to introduce us to some of those jobs. Bert sings it next as a sidewalk artist, showing off his chalk drawings before he's interrupted by the shadow of Mary Poppins. Chim chimney, chim chimney, chim chim cheroo. I does what I likes and I likes what I do. Hello, art lovers. Today I'm a screever, and as you can see, a screever's an artist of highest degree. And it's all me own work from my own memory. Well, not Royal Academy, I suppose. Still are better than a finger in your eye, ain't they? Chim chimney, chim chimney, chim chim cheroo. I draws what I likes, and I likes what I drew. No remuneration do I ask of you, but me cap would be glad of a copper or two. Me cap would be glad of a copper or two. The most popular job that Bert has in the movie is Chimney Sweep, and he sings the main version of Chim Chim Cheree as he escorts the children Michael and Jane home one night. The song celebrates his job as a chimney sweep, which he says is on the lowest rung of life, but he's still one of the happiest and luckiest people in the world. This is part of the legend of the chimney sweep, that shaking hands with one will bring you luck.
Jim, Jiminy, Jim, Jiminy, Jim, Jim, Cherie. A sweep is as lucky as lucky can be. Jim, Jiminy, Jim, Jiminy, Jim, Jim, Cherie. Good luck will rub off when I shake hands with you. Or blow me a kiss. And that's lucky too. Now as the ladder of life has been strung, you might think a sweep's on the bottom most rung. Though I spends me time in the ashes and smoke, in this all wide world there's no happier bloke. Chim chiminy chim chiminy chim chim cheree. A sweep is as lucky as lucky can be. Chim chiminy chim chiminy chim chim cheree. Good luck we're above when I shake hands with you. Chim chiminy chim chiminy chim chim cheree. A sweep is as lucky as lucky can be. Chim chiminy chim chiminy chim chim cheree. Good luck we're above when I shake hands with you. Bert has come to clean the chimney at the Banks house, and in the second part of the song, he sings about the mysteries waiting inside a chimney. I choose me bristles with pride, yes I do, a broom for the shop and a brush for the flue. Oh, it's awfully dark and gloomy up there. There now, you see how wrong people can be? That there is what you might call a doorway to a place of enchantment. Up where the smoke is all billed and curled, between pavement and stars is the chimney sweep world. When there's hardly no day, no hardly no night, there's things half in shadow and halfway in light. On the rooftops of London Cool, what a sight And finally, Julie Andrews as Mary Poppins joins in the final brief part of the song later in the film before the extended Step in Time dance sequence Chim chiminy, chim chiminy, chim chim cheree When you're with a sweep, you're in glad company Nowhere is there a more happier crew Than them what sings chim chim cheree, chim cheroo Chim chiminy, chim chim cheree, chim cheroo Chim Chim Cheree was the song most heard in Mary Poppins. But the one that the Sherman Brothers and Walt Disney liked the most was Feed the Birds, the solemn tune that told the story of a homeless woman living off the tuppence paid to buy a bag of bird feed. And each day to the steps of St. Paul's The little old bird woman In her own special way to the people she calls Come by my bags full of crumbs Come feed the little birds, show them you care And you'll be glad if you do are hungry, their nests are so bare, all 
all it takes is tuppence from you. Feed the birds, tuppence a bag, tuppence, tuppence, tuppence a bag. Feed the birds. That's what she cries While overhead Her birds fill the skies All around the cathedral The saints and apostles Look down as she sells her wares Although you can't see Each time someone shows that he cares Though her words are simple and few Listen, listen, she's calling to you Feed the birds, tuppen a bag Toppence 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 a bag Outside of Chim Chim Cheree, the Academy's music branch liked A Spoonful of Sugar from Mary Poppins, putting it on the list of their top ten songs after preliminary voting, but didn't let it go any further than that. This is Julie Andrews' first song performance in the film, and anyone who says it's anything short of a knockout is just plain wrong. In every job that must be done, there is an element of fun. You find the fun and snap, the job's a game. And every task you undertake becomes a piece of cake, a lark, a spree. It's very clear to see that a of sugar helps the medicine go down, the medicine go down, medicine go down. Just a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down in a most delightful way. A robin feathering his nest has very little time to rest while gathering his bits of twine and twig. Though quite intent in his pursuit, he has a merry tune to toot. He knows a song will move the job along. For a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down, the medicine go down, medicine go down. Just a Sugar helps the medicine go down in a most delightful way. The Mary Poppins soundtrack, released in summer 1964, was an instant hit alongside the film's immediate success. It was the first original movie musical that ranked among the top 10 box office grosses since Gigi in 1959, five years earlier. Like Gigi, Mary Poppins was nominated for Best Picture, the first time Walt Disney had an Oscar nomination as producer of a feature film. It would turn out to be the only Best Picture nominee 
to have a nominated song in 1964. Another original movie musical that did very well in 1964 was Robin and the Seven Hoods, featuring the Rat Pack trio of Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, and Sammy Davis Jr. Bing Crosby, hoping, I guess, to latch on to the fame that his successor Frank Sinatra was enjoying in the 1960s, has a fairly big role in it as well. The movie is a retelling of the Robin Hood story, moving the action from the English countryside to Chicago and the Prohibition era of the 1920s. Writing the 10 songs for the film were Sammy Kahn and Jimmy Van Heusen, taking on their biggest assignment in many years. The task was not to lean into the current trend of rock and roll musicals that Elvis Presley had made famous for almost five years. Kahn and Van Heusen were to make a classic movie musical with songs that flowed right from the plot and would have people cheering for them in the theater. Mark Steen, who wrote the book Broadway Babies Say Goodnight, said of Kahn and Van Heusen's work on Robin Hood and the Seven Hoods that, quote, This could have been their guys and dolls, but by this stage in their careers, neither of them was very interested in working that hard. So instead, they turned in a better score than most movie musicals could boast back then and left it at that, end quote. All the songs in Robin and the Seven Hoods are fine, perfectly tailored for Sinatra, Martin, Davis, and Crosby. But most of them seem to come out of nowhere, like a song and dance number featuring Sammy Davis Jr. praising the virtues of shooting a gun in the middle of trashing a rival's casino. The song that emerged as the lone Oscar nominee from this movie was My Kind of Town, giving us another instant Frank Sinatra classic. In his attempts to get Frank Sinatra's Robbo out of commission, Peter Falk's rival gang boss frames Robbo for the murder of the sheriff of Chicago. Robbo is acquitted, and he celebrates by praising Chicago for being the type of town that will look the other way. Khan's lyrics don't really work grammatically, putting the adjectives before the noun and verb. But it fits the melody, and if we've learned anything about songs, it's that sometimes grammar has to go out the window to fit the melody. Now this could only happen to a guy like me And only happen in a town like this So may I say to each of you most gratefully As I throw each one of you a kiss is my kind of town Chicago is my kind of town Chicago is my kind of people too people who smile at you and time I roam Chicago is calling me home Chicago is why I just grin like a clown it's my kind of town
What's great about the song is that other cities don't have to feel really slighted by the tribute to Chicago. Someone crafty with lyrics can change the words to fit their favorite city. But as for Sinatra, his official recording of My Kind of Town kept Chicago as the city of choice, no matter where he sang it in concerts, and would be added to his growing list of songs that only Frank Sinatra could sing. There's another song I want to point out that could have brought Bring Crosby his 15th performance of an Oscar-nominated song. It's a song that harkens back to his work with Van Heusen and Swinging on a Star. The song is Don't Be a Do-Batter, which Bing sings to a bunch of orphans who are getting funded by Robbo's foundation. Bing singing with the kids definitely makes the song draw comparisons to Swinging on a Star, which is perhaps why the music branch didn't bother considering it. I mean, why nominate Jimmy Van Heusen for a song he already wrote? We're taught and taught and taught To do the things we ought But all the things we're taught Can all add up to not Unless we really come to know There are just two ways to go Take it from me, don't be a do-batterer, do-batterer, do-batter. You'll put your foot on that ladder that leads you to that place below. And every day you'll grow sadder, you'll feel sadder, you'll get madder. So use that self-same step ladder to climb the other way. Scrapping and fighting, scratching and biting, cheating and acting. Selfish makes your heart like a part of the hardest hard shell. Shellfish, take it from me. Don't be a do better, a do better, a do better. Just step aboard that step ladder and climb the other. Though the album for Robin and the Seven Hoods did so-so with the public, none of the songs threatened to make their way onto the Billboard Hot 100 chart. And the movie was also so-so, making about $4 million. What will become more historic about Robin and the Seven Hoods is that it marks the final film appearance of the Rat Pack and the final collaboration between Sinatra and his go-to songwriters Jimmy Van Heusen and Sammy Kahn. None of Sinatra's future films would feature a song written by them, or by any other songwriter. We're getting into a period of movie history when non-musical films had to have a really good reason for someone other than the film's composer to contribute a song. But this isn't the last time Van Heusen and Kahn will write songs for Sinatra. The two wrote some very mellow tunes for the album September of My Years, in which Sinatra was not so subtly hinting that his best professional days were behind him. It was a hit album, and it did not really mark the twilight of his career. But thankfully, we haven't heard the last movie song from Jimmy Van Heusen and Sammy Kahn. They achieved another nomination from 1964 for writing the title song to the film Where Love Has Gone. Khan was stuck with the title since the movie is based on a novel called Where Love Has Gone. But it seemed to offer an idea of a man saddened that the world has turned cold and loveless. 
There must be a place where love always exists, and he longs for that place. That singer is Jack Jones, working hard to be the successor to Frank Sinatra, which is made even more obvious by getting this song written by Sinatra's longtime songwriters. There must be a place A place where love has gone A bright, shiny world Somewhere where love has gone Where dreams and desires As cold as yesterday's fires Start to blaze anew There must be a star Gleaming in space That doesn't grow dim With each last embrace They say love's gone when it goes And I'm naive I suppose there may not be such a place there may not be such a star but still my fool of a heart just leads me on it wants to be film Where Love Has Gone definitely is lacking in romance. The lead characters, played by Susan Hayward and Mike Connors, are divorced and a little resentful. Their daughter has killed Hayward's lover in a fit of anger and is put on trial for the murder. And a good chunk of the movie gives us a flashback of the time when Hayward and Connors were in love, including a scene where Betty Davis, playing Hayward's mother, tries to create a business transaction by uniting Connors and Hayward in marriage. So it definitely seems like Jack Jones is lamenting about the events in this movie that led to a loveless environment. There was a recent real-life connection to the events of the movie. In 1958, Lana Turner's daughter killed her mother's lover, claiming he was about to attack her. Harold Robbins' 1962 novel and the subsequent movie never was able to shake that connection, which might have helped the movie make a decent showing at the theater. Jack Jones released an album in November 1964 called Where Love Has Gone, which also included the title song. It wasn't released to much success, 
but it did get a good amount of radio play. Jones was responsible for helping another song get onto the Oscar list for 1964, though it wasn't written by Kahn and Van Heusen, and he didn't get to sing the film version. That song is called Dear Heart, written for the romantic film of the same name. The song was written by Ray Evans and Jay Livingston, and in a first for them, they wrote the song with someone else. In this case, it was Henry Mancini who was writing the score for the movie. He wanted a song, and his favorite lyricist, Johnny Mercer, was busy trying to get his musical Foxy onto the Broadway stage. So Ray and Jay stepped up to give him the lyrics to this love song. It's not that Evans and Livingston were just picked at random to write the song with Mancini, though. Back in 1957, Mancini arranged the chart-topping commercial recording of Debbie Reynolds singing Tammy, the Oscar-nominated song that Evans and Livingston wrote. So Mancini knew Ray and Jay pretty well, which surely made for an easy collaboration. This is the first Oscar nomination for three-time Oscar winners Evans and Livingston in six years the last coming in 1968 for the love song from Houseboat. It's not that the two have been coasting on their laurels and spending their royalty checks from the success of such songs as Mona Lisa and Que Sera Sera. They took a brief detour into television, writing the theme songs for two of the most popular shows of the early 1960s, Bonanza and Mr. Ed. Both couldn't be more different from each other, which shows how versatile the two were at crafting music. Uh, You know the music to Bonanza well. There were lyrics that were never used in the TV show, but were believed to be too campy. Many artists took the iconic music and wrote their own lyrics years later. As for Mr. Ed, that's Jay Livingston himself singing about the talking horse. His vocal was only going to be a placeholder until a professional singer could be hired. But everyone liked Livingston's version, and it stuck for the show's six seasons. A horse is a horse, of course, of course, and no one can talk to a horse, of course, that is, of course, unless the horse is the famous Mr. Ed. Go right to the source and ask the horse, he'll give you the answer that you endorse. He's always on a steady course. Talk to Mr. Ed. People yakety-yak the street and waste your time a day. But Mr. Ed will never speak unless he has something to say. A horse is a horse, of course, of course, and this one will talk till his voice is hoarse. You never heard of a talking horse? Well, listen to this. I am Mr. Ed. But unlike most Hollywood songwriters who ventured over to television, Evans and Livingston agreed to return to the movies for this special project with Henry Mancini. If not for Henry Mancini, it's likely that Dear Heart might not have been an Academy Award contender. 
Warner Brothers didn't have much confidence in the romantic drama, which gave the legendary theater actress Geraldine Page her first leading role in a movie. Mancini had confidence that, at the very least, the title song would be nominated for an Oscar, so he asked Warner Brothers to put it in one theater in Los Angeles so it would make the film and the song eligible for Oscar consideration. That meant Mancini had to pony up part of the $10,000 needed to advertise the movie in Los Angeles. The movie got its qualifying run in Los Angeles, and when moviegoers got to the end credits, they heard Mancini's lush melody blended with the lyrics supplied by Evans and Livingston. Ray and Jay watched the film before it was released and connected with the romanticized feelings of Geraldine Page's character, who falls in love with Glenn Ford over a weekend in New York City. The song, performed by a chorus, speaks from her point of view, missing the man she loves, but looking forward to the day he returns home. Just a few weeks before the movie was released in December 1964, dueling versions of the song by Andy Williams and Jack Jones came out. Those versions competed on the Billboard Hot 100 through mid-December, with Williams always staying higher on the charts than Jones. And then, once the movie came out, the film version credited to Mancini entered the Hot 100 and jockeyed for top billing. But it didn't stick around for very long. Andy Williams ended up winning this battle, with his version peaking at number 24 in January 1965. Henry Mancini, Ray Evans, and Jay Livingston still turned out to be big winners, with three versions of one song selling well. That meant triple royalties for the three of them. And it was just one of two films in 1964 that gave Mancini an opportunity to show off his talents. Blake Edwards' next film, After Days of Wine and Roses, was the first crime caper featuring Inspector Clouseau, called The Pink Panther. Mancini's jazz-laden opening credits music, featuring that silky saxophone, gave Mancini an Oscar nomination for original score. It's kind of a miracle that all three versions of Dear Heart did so well in the winter of 1964 and 1965. 
Most of the public was falling all over the Righteous Brothers and their version of You've Lost That Loving Feeling, as well as songs by Marvin Gaye, Sam Cooke, and the Kinks. A conventional love ballad without that rock and roll or R&B vibe would have been a hard sell. At least Henry Mancini had the foresight to know that his song could do fairly well. And in addition to her supporting role in Where Love Has Gone, Betty Davis headlined the movie that featured the next nominated song. The movie is the thriller Hush, Hush, Sweet Charlotte. It was supposed to be a reunion for Betty Davis, Joan Crawford, and director Robert Aldrich, who had all worked together on Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. But Crawford found a way out of the movie, alleging illness, and Olivia de Havilland was hired in her place. Without Crawford, there was less hype surrounding the picture. It still made a profit, and had lots of people talking about Betty Davis going more over the top than she ever had, and Olivia de Havilland doing well as the villain. It produced seven Oscar nominations, including one for the title song by composer Frank Duvall and lyricist Mac David. Duvall had been a child prodigy, playing violin in orchestras as a teenager in the late 1920s and also trying his hand at composing. He made a career as an arranger for hitmakers such as Nat King Cole, Dinah Shore, and Ella Fitzgerald. With Nat King Cole serving as one of Capitol Records' biggest stars, it led Duvall to a longtime position there before setting off to try his hand as a film composer in the mid-1950s. Pillow Talk was his first score to a hit movie, followed with the score to Whatever Happened to Baby Jane in 1962. When Robert Aldrich was reassembling his team for Charlotte, he brought Duvall along and it resulted in two nominations for Duvall that year as the score composer and for writing the theme song. And we already know about Mac David, who was earning his fourth nomination in four years, a record for a songwriter. With this song, he created lyrics for a lullaby that we're led to believe was sung to Betty Davis's Charlotte when she was a child. Or it could be a love song for two adults. But I don't know of an adult song that uses the word lullaby. The first time we hear it, it's about an hour into the movie, when Charlotte is really starting to unravel. The memory of seeing her lover decapitated almost 40 years earlier has made her a recluse all these years. And as she begins to unravel, she tries to comfort herself by playing this lullaby at the piano. The 
this lullaby, sweet Charlotte, was loved by John. <laughs> Olivia de Havilland and Joseph Cotton play her cousin and doctor, respectively and their seemingly innocent attempts to calm Charlotte are revealed to be deceitful. They're trying to gaslight her so they can take her money. One night, Cotton goes to the piano and plays Hush, Hush, Sweet Charlotte, pretending to be the voice of Charlotte's dead lover. Hush, hush, sweet Charlotte. Charlotte, don't you cry. Hush, hush, sweet Charlotte, I love you till I die. Oh, hold me, darling, please hold me close and brush the tears from your eyes. You weep because you had a dream last night. You dream that I said goodbye. Hush, hush, sweet Charlotte. Charlotte, don't you cry. The movie turns violent in places as we begin to understand what happened 40 years ago. Now, I won't give away what really happens in the end, but let's just say our nominated song appears for the final time as our car drives away from the mansion, leading into the end credits. Hush, hush, sweet Charlotte. Charlotte, don't you cry. Hush, hush, sweet Charlotte. I love you till I die. Hush, hush, sweet Charlotte, Charlotte, don't you cry. Hush, hush, sweet Charlotte, I love you too. That's Al Martino singing the final version of the song. His recording of the song wasn't given much of a chance, released as the B-side for his single, My Heart Would Know. That song almost cracked the top 50 on the Billboard chart, but rarely does a B-side song do as well or better than the A-side. Martino released an album called Somebody Else Is Taking My Place that included Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte, but it didn't do that well publicly. In summer 1965, long after the winner of the Academy Award for Best Song of 1964 was announced, Patti Page released her version of the song that cracked the top ten and gave it a new life. Now those are the five nominated songs nominated for the Academy Award from 1964. Chim Chim Cherie, Dear Heart, Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte, My Kind of Town, and Where Love Has Gone. Not a terribly bad list, and it's great to hear some variation in the material. But if you know anything 
about movies released in 1964, you know that the Academy's music branch seemed to grossly ignore the songs from two blockbuster movies, songs that took on major lives of their own outside the films. One of them was the third James Bond movie called Goldfinger, and it was the first to put its theme song into the opening credits, and what a song it was. The title character is the villain of the movie, a man called Goldfinger who is trying to smuggle gold. Yeah, the man's name is a little too on the nose, but when has a character's name in a James Bond movie been subtle? The title song, written by John Barry, Leslie Brickus, and Anthony Newley, makes a bold introduction on the brass before British singing sensation Shirley Bassey sings about Goldfinger, the man with the Midas touch. Just to clear up a long-running misconception, John Barry did not write the iconic musical theme for James Bond with the electric guitar and trumpets. That was Monty Norman, even though Barry had sued to claim ownership and get the big royalty checks that Norman was earning. But Norman prevailed, leaving Barry to just make a lot of money on his own from writing the scores for more than half of the Bond films. Leslie Brickus and Anthony Newley began their partnership on London's West End, writing the song score for the stage musical Stop the World, I Want to Get Off. One of the songs from that show, called What Kind of Fool Am I, won the Grammy for Song of the Year in 1963, beating out Tony Bennett's I Left My Heart in San Francisco and the love song from the stage show Oliver, called As Long As He Needs Me, which incidentally was recorded by Shirley Bassey. Brickus and Newley, who had called themselves Brickman and Newberg as an amalgamation of their names and their movie hero Ingmar Bergman, were about to write their second stage show when they received a phone call from their friend John Barry, who wanted Brickman and Newberg to write the lyrics for Goldfinger. In the middle of working on songs for their show, they obliged, though not completely enthusiastically. Brickus joked that after Barry played the three notes of Goldfinger, 
he recognized the similarity to the opening of Moon River and began to sing that lyric. But they took the job, handed in a lyric, and let John Barry do the rest. According to Brickus in his autobiography, Pure Imagination, he and Newley were so deep into writing that stage show that they didn't know that Shirley Bassey had recorded it and made it a big hit for them. They didn't know about the song's success until they got their gold records, indicating that the song had sold more than one million copies. Bassey took the song to number eight on the Billboard chart, and it became her signature song. Bassey's delivery of the song with The Haunting Melody by Barry should have been enough to get it recognized by the Academy, but it was essentially a rock ballad with some traditional orchestral touches, and we know how the Academy felt about rock and roll music at the time. That feeling was very evident when the Beatles came out with their first feature-length movie, a comedy called A Hard Day's Night. The movie was filmed in March and April 1964, just one month after the Beatles made their American debut on The Ed Sullivan Show. United Artists worked fast to capitalize on their now international success by starting filming on A Hard Day's Night as soon as the Beatles returned from their American tour. The first single by the Beatles released in the United States, I Want to Hold Your Hand, took only a few weeks to get to number one at the same time. The songs for A Hard Day's Night were written by John Lennon and Paul McCartney, though Lennon claimed that he wrote about 90% of the words in music. Not all of the songs were written specifically for the movie. Some were composed almost a year earlier. In any case, all of the songs are sensational. Some of them are just song performances with little to no relation to the plot, which probably didn't sit well with the music branch. Even if the title song was popular and catchy, it doesn't really describe the life of the Beatles in the film on the road to becoming the superstar band they were at the time. The title song plays over the opening credits as we see the Beatles trying to outrun a throng of cheering fans. And I would imagine teenage moviegoers couldn't help dancing in the aisles when the movie began playing. It's been a hard day's night And I've been working like a dog It's been a hard day's night I should be sleeping like a log But when I get home to you I find the things that you do Will make me feel The other song from the movie that has become a longtime hit for the Beatles was Can't Buy Me Love, which plays twice in the film. The first time is after a rehearsal for a TV show, when the four escape the studio for an afternoon playing and frolicking on a sports field. 
The song and the visuals, which used a lot of shaky crane shots, don't have anything to do with each other. But it's still a fun song to go with a fun scene. Can't buy me love, love, can't buy me love. I'll buy you a diamond ring, my friend, if it makes you feel alright. I'll get you anything, my friend, if it makes you feel alright. Cause I don't care too much for money, but money can't buy me love. I'll give you all I've got to give if you say you The second performance still doesn't have much to do with the song, but it is still a fun scene. Ringo has landed in jail after some antics, and the rest of the gang go to the police station to get him out. They spend two minutes running up and down the street with the police after them. Paul McCartney gets full credit for writing this song, which was written just as I Want to Hold Your Hand was being introduced to American audiences. It would become the first hit from the album, and by the end of 1964, the Beatles had 10 songs in the Billboard Hot 100 and 5 of the top 5. But that wasn't enough to oppress the Academy, who didn't nominate any of the songs, but felt that producer George Martin's supervision of the songs was enough to give him an Oscar nomination for music adaptation. In 1964, the nominees in this category were only those who adapted or supervised the music, not the songwriters, even if the majority of the songs were original. None of the songs from A Hard Day's Night made it onto the top 10 from the preliminary ballot from the Academy's music branch. None. This was as direct a statement from the music branch that you could get about their feelings on rock and roll in the movies especially when the songs are written by British musicians in their early 20s. Imagine the excitement that would have taken over the newspapers in the weeks before the 37th Academy Awards if a song by the Beatles had been nominated for an Oscar. Surely the producers would have fought to get John, Paul, George, and Ringo to appear on the telecast, and it would have brought in close to the 78 million that watched the Beatles in February 1964 on the Ed Sullivan Show. But... That was not to be. Two months before the Academy Awards, the Hollywood Foreign Press Association held its 22nd annual Golden Globe Awards ceremony in Los Angeles, and the group finally started to nominate songs again. They liked a James Bond song enough to nominate it in 1964, but not Goldfinger. Instead, they nominated it from Russia with Love, which had technically been released in the United States in 1963, but the Hollywood Foreign Press counted it as a 1964 movie. Dear Heart and Where Love Has Gone earned Golden Globe nominations in addition to their Oscar nominations, and the HFPA filled out their roster with two songs that didn't get Oscar nominations. Sunday in New York was the title song from the romantic comedy starring Jane Fonda. 
Mel Torme, who was doing well as a jazz singer and composer, sang the title song that had lyrics by Carol Coates and music by the film's composer Peter Nero. Life's a ball, let it fall right in your lap If you've got troubles Just take them out for a walk They'll burst like bubbles In the fun of a Sunday in New York You can spend time without spending a dime Watching people watch people pass Later you pause and in one of the stores There's that face next to yours in the glass Two hearts stop beating You're both too breathless to speak Love smiles her greeting Then the dream that has seen you through the week Comes to one Sunday in New York This will be the first and only Golden Globe nomination for Carol Coates and Peter Nero. The British lyricist Coates was able to write a few songs versed in the jazz and rock and roll idioms of the late 1950s. And the songs for those films, including The Girl Can't Help It in 1956, reportedly influenced John Lennon to begin a career in rock music. Nero started his career at his early 20s, in New York City playing on jazz records and winning a Grammy in 1962 for Best New Artist. Unlike many of the winners of that Grammy category over the years, Nero was not able to capitalize on it very much, getting this gig to score a moderately successful romantic comedy, but mostly working as music directors for other musicians on their TV specials and albums. Neither Coates nor Nero will ever get the opportunity to call themselves Oscar nominees, failing to write any music that would be recognized for the Academy. Winning that Golden Globe that year was the title song from the movie Circus World, written by Dimitri Tiomkin and Ned Washington. After their successes at the Oscars, it seemed odd that the song Circus World didn't get an Oscar nomination solely on the strength of the names of the songwriters. The movie itself was a major box office failure, earning a little more than $1 million on a $9 million budget. The film was produced by the same company that made El Cid and 55 Days at Peking, both of which had its love songs nominated for Oscars. The song Circus World is not a love song, but rather a quiet description of the world we're about to see. It's not trying to act as a call to come watch the acts at the circus, but talking about what happens when the tents go down and the crowds leave. It didn't get an Oscar nomination, but it was on the list of top 10 songs after the music branch made its preliminary selections. Circus, welcome us, all souls to pay. 
So now that you've heard Circus World and you know that it was voted by the Academy's music branch as one of the 10 best original movie songs of 1964, do you think it was better than Goldfinger and all the songs from A Hard Day's Night, neither of which got songs into the top 10? I mean, Circus World is a fine song and it fits the film well, but even if we were to analyze these songs as they were in 1964 instead of looking in hindsight more than 50 years later, it's still very shocking that Circus World was deemed better. At this point, it's probably a little bit of the boys' club excluding the fresh new faces. The Academy Awards, two months later, featured performances on stage of the five nominated songs. The biggest star among the performers at the April 5, 1965 ceremony was Andy Williams, who sang his hit, Dear Heart. Patti Page performed Hush, Hush, Sweet Charlotte, a few months before recording her official record. And of course, Frank Sinatra wasn't going to sing My Kind of Town after refusing to perform pretty much every other time in years past, even when he was there as a nominee or host. So jazz singer Nancy Wilson took Sinatra's place. The ceremony featured a lengthy tribute to songwriter and four-time nominee Cole Porter, who had died of liver failure in October 1964. Judy Garland's appearance was sure to be a big draw for her fans, and she sang portions of 11 Porter songs on the show after the announcement of the winner for the Best Song Award. Another star of Hollywood's Golden Age of Musicals was the presenter of the award, and Fred Astaire came out to a lengthy ovation from the crowd, dressed in his typical white tie and tails. With little pretense, he opened the envelope and revealed that Richard and Robert Sherman won for writing Chim Chim Cheree. The brothers referred to another song from Mary Poppins when accepting the award. Well, when there are no words to say, all you can say is supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. <laughs> the song Oscar was the second award for the Sherman Brothers that night, having also won for the original score to Mary Poppins. At the time, musicals were eligible for the original score category and they beat out Frank Duvall's full score for Hush, Hush, Sweet Charlotte and the massive hit that Henry Mancini wrote for The Pink Panther. They had thanked so many people in accepting this award, which further explains the brevity of their acceptance speech for the Song Award. This made the Sherman Brothers the fourth and fifth people to win two music Oscars in the same year. Though they were specifically songwriters, the trend of winning two music Oscars in one ceremony was becoming a reality 
with it happening twice already in the 1960s. Two weeks later, Dear Heart and A Hard Day's Night were nominated for Song of the Year at the 7th Annual Grammy Awards. Henry Mancini had a chance to win his third Grammy in this category, and it was the first Beatles song to earn a Grammy nomination. Neither song won, though. It was Jerry Herman's Hello, Dolly that took the win that year. The Song of the Year nomination for Dear Heart was the first and only Grammy nomination for Jay Livingston and Ray Evans, if you can believe that. And the song marked their final Oscar nomination. They kept writing songs for the movies through the 1960s, and we'll learn about the song that almost got them back into the Oscar race in a few episodes. But Ray Evans and Jay Livingston had a great track record at the Oscars, each winning three awards from seven nominations. As I mentioned in my introduction of the songwriting partners in episode 13, they would have one of the longest unbroken songwriting collaborations in Hollywood, running 20 years. Jay Livingston lived to 2001 and Ray Evans died in 2007, and they both were able to enjoy the benefits of hearing their hit songs played in movies for decades. The only possible downfall was people not really knowing that Mona Lisa and others were created by them. With My Fair Lady taking the Best Picture Oscar at the 1965 ceremony, musicals were back on the upswing in Hollywood. A month before the Academy Awards, and perhaps not too coincidentally, the film version of The Sound of Music starring Julie Andrews was released. Many have believed The Sound of Music's instant success helped boost Julie Andrews' chances of winning the Oscar for Mary Poppins. And The Sound of Music will be a film that will be featured a lot in the Academy Awards ceremony in 1966. But there are no new songs in the film version, which means no nominees for original song from The Sound of Music. But we'll have some interesting nominees for 1965, including some first-time nominees and a groundbreaking musical. I'm really looking forward to sharing these nominated songs with you on the next episode of the Best Song Podcast. Before we end this episode, I want to give an extra special thank you to Marcelo Cabral and Victor Joss for sponsoring this episode. Thank you to everyone for listening to the Best Song Podcast and for singing along with me. Let's do it again next time. The Best Song Podcast is not authorized or endorsed by the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. The show's creator, writer, producer, and editor is Jeff Cummings. All music clips are permitted for use under the Education Clause of the Fair Use Doctrine in United States law.